Jews who survived the Poles and the Nazis during the years of the Holocaust. The narrator is a middle-aged man recalling this boyhood in, in wartime Poland. The book was nominated for the National Book Award and received the Irish Times Aer Lingus International Fiction Prize. The author is a lawyer and lives in New York. I wanted, uh, as a way of getting us started, to suggest that we go back. By the way, is, have I got this at the right place? Can you hear me? Uh, to start with uh, thinking about the kind of reading we did as children, not as we remember it now, but perhaps as it happened to us at the time. Uh, I used to teach a course in children's literature, and I began by asking my students this question, which I'll ask the panelists, and, and I suggest that you might want to answer this question for yourself. What was it in your childhood reading that happened to you, you know, that, that the first, the shock of recognition that came not from some event in the world or some a person in your life or your family, but came out of a, out of a book. It's interesting that you read uh, autobiographies and, and uh, the people who write autobiographies who tend to be writers tend to include among the events in their lives uh, events that happened in books. Uh, let me ask uh, each, each of you, if you will, to, uh, to address this or, or, or not, as you wish. Uh, Alan, do you want to start? Yes, I'll start. I, I am just in the process of coming down with a cold, which you, I think several of you will understand. And so I've done the atypical thing of writing some of this down, which I don't usually do. But now that I've written it down, and I think you'll understand, I want to read a few passages from this slightly overprepared text that will answer this wonderful question. All books are children's books to children. To that same child, all woods are the woods, all adults are oversized, all mysteries are first cousins, and all facts full of holes. All darkness might contain monsters, and it's a wise child indeed who learns never to unlearn these facts. An early toy of mine was the Holy Bible. It seemed composed of stained glass and Legos. I knew its books the way I knew my blocks. I believe that it and my other favorite, the Grimm Fairy Tales, were a form of travel writing. They described not imagined distant tales, but actual terrain where terra firma finally all things happen for the greater glory of narrative. The world, like the black book and the shiny linoleum cover, should also begin in the beginning and also end as we hope our lives will end with revelation. At the end of my life's endings, I still long for a moral. A moral is, I think, unfashionable in our current age. I think about the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill debacle and waiting for the moral to occur. I'm still waiting for the moral, and I hope the moral is not the cover of People magazine with Clarence Thomas and his wife grinning in glee and satisfaction and triumph. I mean, there is a way of adapting fairy tales to our contemporary reality, and the two seminal works for me were The Grim Fairy Tales and The Holy Bible. Those were read to me 
by day and by night. For some reason, the Bible was read in the day and the grim fairy tales were read in the night, <laughs> which makes a certain amount of sense. And I think probably colored more than anything else my sense of stories as being important, stories as being entertainments, but also moral units. At no time in my life did I think what I'm doing as a writer is frivolous or unnecessary or trivial. It seemed to me that stories were a kind of inscription about what we expect from each other, which means what we expect from ourselves, and that stories offered a kind of promise, and the promise can be reduced to what is still for me the most potent and beautiful phrase in the English language, once upon a time. Let me repeat that. Once upon a time. It's pure possibility. It always puts me in a kind of state of trance. Just hearing it reminds me of that kind of like the opening of a beautiful fan over the bed when my mother or father or nurse read story after story, which I knew by heart and would correct them if they skipped a page. No, wait, you know, the frog doesn't come in till later and this should have happened. Uh, there's a way in which uh, stories contain moral instruction, not just by virtue of their having a moral tagged on, but by virtue of the assumption that uh, a human life, any human life, not just a king's life, but a tailor's life, is inherently valuable and interesting. That all stories are about struggle and difficulty. Difficulty that is transcended or not transcended. And in the extraordinary beauty of narrative, which, as you know, is from the Greek word naras, meaning to know, a setback can work in a story as it can't in a life. And this business of stories as saving units appealed to me enormously. Also, stories as units that are told out of personal experience, because I was not only read to. I listened to my elders and betters. All Southerners are involved in ancestor worship, let's face it. And I listened to stories about my grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother. Only recently, when I was in ho at home in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, where I started out, and which I never really left in some real way, the, the antidote for me to you can't go home again is never really leave. <laughs> keep the phone bill up and keep up with the local gossip, which is absolutely delicious, I can tell you. Is I suddenly realized that within six miles of the house where I was born and heard once upon a time for the first time, there were two homes that were famous because Sherman had not burned them. And I will now tell you why Sherman did not burn them. And in telling you, I will tell you what was sort of assumed as oxygen is assumed in my beginning years. But as I run out of oxygen, as we all are running out of oxygen by virtue of global warming and by virtue of mortality, I suddenly realize was inherently valuable and atypical and beautiful. 
There are two houses six miles from my house. One is a plantation called Cool Springs. Sherman's forces were burning a swatch 75 miles wide to break the spirit and back of the enemy in what my great-grandfather used to call the War of the Northern Invasion. And seriously, too. It was not ironic a bit. At Cool Springs, just as the torches were about to be administered to this very, very beautiful three-story house with not atypically a slave's cupola so that the overseer could watch the slaves working or not working in the far corners of the plantation and mete out discipline by virtue of notes sent to the overseer on the ground. Two northern soldiers came forward and said to the colonel who was about to order the house burned, Sir, we are brick masons. We are twin brothers from Boston, and we were sent south four years before the war began to build beautiful houses. This is a house we built. This house contains our most beautiful brickwork, and we pray, God, that you will spare this house. And the house was spared. Three miles down the road, this is August 1864, three miles down the road, there's another house which is nameless. The family, having heard that the Yankees are in the territory, is hiding underneath the house. There's no real basement, but there's a kind of crawl space where food is kept. And as the Yankee troops approach the house, sweating profusely from its being August and from setting fires in August, which is double duty if there ever was one, the five-year-old daughter of the house ran forward instead of running away from the Yankee troops, much to the horror of her parents who assumed that she would be killed instantly and said to the colonel, Sir, in the basement of my house are 14 barrels of cider, which are very cool. I notice that your men are sweating. If you will spare our house, I can promise you and your men all the cold cider you can drink. Done, quoth the captain. The house was spared. The parents scurried out from the basement, bringing all sorts of casks from the house and passing them to every single soldier who was very grateful and went on their way refreshed. And at the moment that the Yankees left the land, the father, who expected, as all fathers did then, to leave the house to his eldest son, turned and said to the five-year-old girl, this house, this property is yours forever. And in 1955, when I was seven years old, this old lady was still living in this house she had saved in 1864. And I knew her, and her grandchildren were my friends. This is my incredibly rich and beautiful tradition. And along with the stories that are saved by virtue of their being in the Bible and by virtue of the Brothers Grimm touring their territory and collecting such stories from their neighbors and relatives. It's been my joy and mission, and it is a mission, it is a passion, to salvage some of these stories that are lost to the air. We know Shakespeare's work for one reason only, 
because his actors could not memorize his work without having it written down so they could take home and work on their memorization. And because they loved the word so much that they preserved the text for posterity. I would submit to you that for every Shakespeare, the single Shakespeare, and there's no greater writer in the history of the world, in my opinion, there must be 1,300, and I'll just make up an arbitrary figure, 1,300 illiterate people who knew everything Shakespeare did, who suspected everything Shakespeare did, and who told the stories and enriched the communities, and who died, and whose work was lost when they died. And it's my joy to try to preserve in writing, as in musical notation, those stories, the stories that could be lost, the stories of wise people who are not necessarily educated people, the stories of people who are utterly ignored by the majority of the people who are in charge of our government at this particular moment, but who have a kind of wisdom and a kind of force and a kind of faith that speaks to me and that moves me and that amuses me. And uh, that's part of my mission. And it all sort of rolls out from behind that magical phrase, once upon a time. Thank you. I'm just remembering that uh, the Arabian stories begin not with once upon a time, but with the other magical phrase, there was and there was not. Uh, there's something I forgot to say, uh, and that is that if you, uh, we're going to go on for about an hour or so, and we hope that you will put your questions uh, to, uh, uh, to raise another kind of conversation for, the, for, for another couple of minutes. On, put them on a piece of paper, and somebody will come around and collect them, and we'll try and answer them. Paul, do you want to take over? Okay. Uh, I'm going to sort of um, take the liberty of, uh, of a brief sort of rambling preamble, uh, before, which has to do with place, before I speak directly to the question as to what book had its greatest impact upon me as a child. Because place is part of the answer to the, to the question. I think that for me, <clears throat> the most valuable piece of real estate in my life, as a kid growing up across the river in Brooklyn, was, um, was the Macon Street branch of the Brooklyn Public Library. It was this imposing edifice around the corner from my house and you had to call it an edifice and nothing as ordinary as a building because it was made out of this very sort of substantial masonry and uh, with a very wide step, stone steps to the front leading up to the entrance. And on either side of these stone steps, uh, there, were, there were two um, sort of um, brass um, torches like the Olympic torch. And that, of course, represented the light that comes from learning. Anyway, inside the entrance, there were more steps, uh, wide steps, and a brass railing, I remember, that was always polished to thy kingdom come, just, just kept in absolute condition, good condition. And there was this huge 
near soundless clock above the circulation desk. And the custodian, a scowling West Indian type who acted as if he was the chief librarian. And as this sort of pre-literate four and five year old, I used to be taken by my older sister to the storytelling hour on Saturday. And what a treat that was, what magic that was. First of all, suddenly there was the world reduced to my scale, or at least the world on my scale, these lovely little tables and these chairs with a seat that was just the right size for our bottoms. <laughs> And we would sit there in this semicircle, and there was a librarian who would sit on the floor with us and had a lovely gesture when she would turn the book so that we could see the pictures. I remember the way her hand would move as she turned the pages for us. Um, and we were treated, of course, to, what was it? <clears throat> uh, Little Red Riding Hood, <laughs> Snow White, Goldilocks. Those were the images served up to me. And of course, not knowing any better, I loved them. <laughs> it was magical. <laughs> then during adolescence, uh, the Macon Street branch of the Brooklyn Public Library became my refuge. I remember I hid out in the stacks from my raging hormones and from the usual arrogant adolescent disaffection with family and community. How could I possibly, this sensitive person, belong to these people and to this community? That kind of dramatic strum and drum um, that is so built into that phase of life. Anyway, I read during that period as if I was possessed. Everything from Jane Austen to Zane Grey. I loved the writers of the Purple Sage. And my especial favorites were the great 18th and 19th century English novels, the big reads, the fat books, uh, Thackeray and Fielding and Dickens and Thomas Hardy. But there was always the vague sense that there was something missing, something lacking. And of course, I couldn't quite define what that was. And then one day, I was sort of browsing in the poetry section of the library and I came across this book on the shelf. It was called The Collected Poems of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And I was intrigued because we had the same name. By that time, I had sort of uh, created my own name, Paul. And uh, took it down from the shelf, opened it, and to my absolute amazement, the picture of the poet in the frontispiece turned out to be that of a black man. The first time I'd ever come across a book by or about black people, people like myself. And he was every bit a poet, large, eloquent eyes, a pensive, slightly tubercular look to him. <laughs> and I just had to go through this book. And it took place there in the hushed quiet of the library, that impact, that encounter. And I sort of flipped through the pages of this sizable tome. And um, there were poems that spoke to me in a special way. Because as I said, in the, the sort of Brooklyn schools, public schools of the day, uh, it was all about strictly Dick and Jane and Spot. 
and then later on became to what I call the Snow White works of, of American and Western European literature. But there for the first time, I came across, as I flipped through this book, a poem that said, little brown baby with sparkling eyes, brown, the shock of recognition. And the subject of the poem, which had to do with the relationship of a father and child, spoke to me in a special way because it helped to ease for me the sense of loss and longing that I had because of my own father. Uh, then there was another poem on a lighter note, which went, seen my lady home last night, jump back, honey, jump back. Held her hand, squeezed it tight, jump back, honey, jump back. About love between a black man and woman, something I thought a lot about because the hormones were raging, as I said but for the first time actually saw, written down. Uh, so I devoured Dunbar. And I found that what he was doing with the dialect, in a sense, was capturing for me what I had heard and absorbed, the many voices, the many ways of dealing with English that I had heard coming along. There was, first of all, black English, African-American style, which my friends in the neighborhood spoke. Then there was West Indian black English, which my mother and my father, who came from the West Indies, spoke. And then, too, his subjects were about ordinary people, about ordinary life. And they suggested to me, even in the midst of my rebellion against family and community, that there might be something important, valid, and even sacred about my own experience, about that tight little world, that tight little island of West Indian and African-American Brooklyn, that there might even be something worthy of literature about it. Finally, Dunbar gave me the courage to go up to the white librarian at the circulation desk and say to her that I would like a list of books by and about black people. We didn't say black in those days, it was colored or negro, but anyway, she got the idea. <laughs> uh, and it was then that I began making up for the sins of omission. So I'm very grateful to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the black bard from Dayton, Ohio, who once said, what a curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. Mm. <laughs> mm. We realize that we've come here for you from the south of the North America, from Brooklyn, from Poland, and from Vienna. So, Poland, speak. Well, I have a very big problem, which is that I, like Alan, have a cold, and I also... And I'm in the middle. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm given to mumbling, so I'd like to know whether this microphone is working. Is it working? That's good. Good. Well, let's see what's... Yes? All right. It'll be done. Well, um, I wonder if I should be here at all. I'll tell you why, because it's not because of my cold. It's because I read uh, constantly when I was a child, and I define childhood, I guess, uh, fairly enough from the time when I could begin to read, which was early on, uh, until... I became an adolescent, 
And the reason I read constantly was that due to the peculiar circumstances of the war, uh, there was nothing else I could do except read and um, play with uh, lead soldiers, whatever. But I mostly read. But I read things uh, that have nothing to do uh, with any of you here, in a way, because I read either uh, Polish books that are lost somewhere in Polish mist, or I read great Western classics in Polish translation and children's version, um, or I read things I've simply forgotten. I find, I've always found that my memory uh, is terrible, except for those things that I've chosen to remember. And uh, there are many things that I've chosen not to remember. Now, uh, I've put my memory is particularly bad for uh, plots and names of characters. And what has remained in my memory uh, are more likely to be words and scenes. And so I would say that the two uh, great uh, moments in my reading as a child were two authors who are totally different and united only by their eminence and excellence and their, and their for you in any event, unpronounceable names. Uh, one was Mickiewicz, who was Poland's greatest poet, uh, whose dates are uh, roughly, I hope I'm not making a terrible mistake, uh, 1785, let's say, to 1855. Uh, and the other is Jeromsky, uh, whose dates must be 1880, no, that's not 18, let's say 1870 to 1925. Now, uh, Mickiewicz um, wrote the great uh, Polish epic. Uh, which is called Pantadeusz, and its subtitle is The History of the Last Raid in Lithuania. A raid, in this sense, uh, was a sort of a posse of the petty nobility uh, in Lithuania. And, and, and you must remember that uh, everybody in Poland and in Lithuania was noble, everybody except Jews, of course, and peasants. And... Um, uh, the law was very poorly enforced, so that when uh, a judgment finally made its way through whatever courts there were, uh, the only way a nobleman could have his rights carried out was to gather all the poor nobles, uh, besotted, besnotted, and so forth, with their uh, swords at their sides, uh, to ride with him and make rough and ready justice. And the story the story of Panta Deus is the story of one of those raids. It's a comical one in some ways, extraordinarily romantic. I won't tell you about that, though. I won't, that's my way of an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, the thing that stuck in my mind was a great patriotic poem called Reduta Ordona, which is Ordon's Redute. This has to do with the 1830 uprising um, in Warsaw against uh, the Russians, and um, 
the uh, there was a, a fort, a reduct, defended by a colonel called Orden, and the story is told by a, a young officer who stands uh, up on a smoking gun and looks at the field and sees the uh, sea of Russian troops uh, slowly rolling over this white and blazing thing which is the Redoute and its, and its firing guns and um, he uh, sees uh, the uh, uh, cannonballs uh, making their bloody way through the advancing troops and uh, wonders about the Tsar in his palace who sends these uh, soldiers who are innocent and indifferent uh, to what they are doing against death and, and about the death which is about to engulf the defenders of the fort. Now, uh, why did I uh, care so much about the uprising of 1830? I didn't care mm-hmm. about it in the least. Uh, what I cared about it was the insufferably beautiful uh, music of the words in the first place and in the second place about the loneliness of the observer and um, uh, I believe in the talismanic virtue of words and I still can recite most of that poem I won't recite it for you and it has been it became for me a sort of an incantation that uh, I could use in various circumstances. Uh, It had to do with being alone, it had to do with being outside, it had to do with the inevitability of a bad ending, uh, with the abstraction of the forces uh, that are involved. Um, Pantadeus is rather different. Pantadeus is humorous. You could compare it in a in a way to the rape of the lock it's it's written with as much uh, virtuosity and with a palette that's uh, as extraordinary as Pope's in the rape of the lock now the other the other book I must have read when I was slightly older probably was too young to have read it it's Jeromsky's which means early spring. That was uh, Jeromsky's last book, probably written in 1925. Um, It's a sort of flower of Polish uh, naturalism, and you might, I might today uh, think that uh, it uh, is not inconceivable that Jeromsky had long meditated on Flaubert's sentimental education and that is the story of a, of an only son coddled and cherished by uh, Polish parents living in Baku and um, uh, amid thick carpets and rich furniture and uh, beautifully uh, bound books and then the war, the first war begins. The father goes off to uh, war with the Russian army. Uh, the boy, little 
Caesar, I suppose it's, it's, uh, Cesaric, um, is left with his mother. Let's call him the boy from now on. Uh, is left with his mother, and uh, the revolution sweeps over them and uh, <laughs> reduces them, reduces them to uh, uh, scavengers trying to uh, survive um, by the wits uh, of the mother, whom meanwhile her son despises because he, being then 16 years old, has uh, become enamored of the ideals of the revolution, and she to him is a survival of uh, the bourgeois regime, but she's keeping him uh, alive by her wiles, and then she dies, and he, uh, through some uh, extraordinary circumstances, finds his father, who tells him, you must go back to Poland, because Poland, in Poland there has been a phenomenal invention um, of one of our own cousins, which is a special way of making glass, so that instead of steel, instead of bricks, instead of wood, one uses glass to build houses, to uh, make anything that's uh, needed so that everything is permeated by light. And there is a ghastly story of the voyage back to Poland, of course, back into the Polish mud and obscurity. And um, the boy realizes this was a cruel joke. Well, he's by, now, by, by then he's no longer a boy. And um, uh, in, indeed, he's a very handsome young man. He briefly fights in the Polish-Russian war. And after the war is won, because the Poles won that war in 1920, he um, goes to the countryside, to the state of um, some friends he'd made in the war, and uh, conquers the love of a perfectly beautiful widow who is engaged to a very rich man. And here is what hooked me. Uh, when he is with her in her room, uh, there is a signal which she has agreed on with her rich fiancé, which is that she must raise and lower the flame in her oil lamp to show him as he is driving away in his carriage that she is thinking of him. And so he... he our hero does the raising and lowering of the flame while his mistress undresses. <laughs> now, uh, wow. Paul talked about hormones. Uh, uh, at the age of 11 or whatever, I was a concentrate of hormones. And this, was, this was a most extraordinary uh, thing for me, as indeed was the uh, uh, amazing... Uh, denouement uh, of this love affair in which uh, one night when uh, the hero comes to the at the appointed hour he uh, is met by the um, fiancé who is waiting for him and smites him with a riding whip across the face leaving an indelible scar well I will spare you the rest <laughs> of the story but uh, what is it about um, such things. Uh, for me, uh, uh, it was mostly words, 
and when it wasn't words, it was daydreams. Uh, daydreams about uh, some form of heroic or tragic solitude and about sex. And in Jeromsky, the two combined. Uh, in Mitzkevich, it was words. And um, uh, somehow, whereas I've forgotten the plots of uh, Monte Cristo and Sir, uh, I don't know, and Ivanhoe and uh, most of whatever else I read of Sir Walter Scott, those things have stuck in my mind. Uh, we're getting exactly what I hope, because if you've read uh, our, our panelists' adult work, you will see how all this is at, is, is at work underneath. Uh, I, I want to be a little more precise, or um, I want to zero in on a, on a particular event in, in what seems to me to be... Uh, to still inform my work. And in fact, I have recently, you know what, 50 years after reading this, uh, I have actually used in a story. Uh, when we originally planned this program, we were thinking of uh, naming it the, or, or, or talking about the classics, the childhood classics that, uh, in, that uh, influenced us. And I suggested that we leave it a little more open than that Maybe it wasn't classics. Now, I think, uh, I think it was usually <laughs> in, in the other space. It was classics. In my case, it is a totally anonymous work. In fact, it's one of those stories that I think we've all read about child detectives, groups of child detectives, universally awful books mm -hmm. by any standard of, of literateness. But nevertheless, uh, the story that most uh, uh, has stayed with me and I know that since I left Vienna when I was 10, I know I must have read this before I was 10. Uh, a group of children belonging to one family want to hunt the thief that has been robbing the village. And they're going to be smarter than the police. And they're going, their dog is going to be smarter than the police dog. And the dog is a mutt. And there it's going to be the police dog. And they go out at midnight. And they say to this dog, find the thief. And the damn dog, instead of finding the thief, sees a squirrel run up a tree and begins to bark. And it barks and it barks and it barks. And children say, oh, come on. You know, not squirrel, thief. You know, what kind of a police dog are you? Oh, come on. Let's go back inside. Now, of course, because a squirrel runs up a tree, doesn't mean the thief isn't sitting up there also. And it seems to me to be the, the, the fate of the writer to be barking and barking and barking and to be not be understood. Uh, all of us who are ever edited by anybody uh, know that nobody knows what we really mean. And it seemed to me, and this is what I want to get I, my The shock of recognition I'm talking about is the recognition of that it is possible that you will not be understood. And all you can do is more barking. You own all you have. The dog has barked. I have words. And I will say it. I will explain it. And I'll explain it some more. And I will find a new scene for it. And you will still not know what I mean. 
And that seems to me, I mean, I remember the roiling in my chest for this dog who was not able to explain himself. Uh, that's, that's, that's scene number one. What interests me is that some of the, the books that I remember, or, the, or, or in some cases pictures that I remember, don't have such a nice, neat explanation in my later life. Oh, I want to say the first picture I ever drew when somebody gave me oil paints was Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with a huge eye in which the fall of Troy was... was, was and in fact, I've ri lately written a story uh, in which a dog called Cassandra knows things that she cannot explain. <laughs> but uh, I'm sort of interested in looking back at the things that in fact moved me or in some way hit me. And one of them is uh, a the pictures, I don't remember the story, again of a classic of children's, and a, and a bad classic of a children's literature, the toys that come alive at night. Do you remember the toys that come alive at night? Uh, and I don't remember why they moved me. I don't remember why I remember them. I now know something I didn't know at the time, that these were not very interesting pictures in black and orange, an unpleasant orange. I remember it was unpleasant. And I remember that the toys, that there was a, a teddy bear riding on a train and that it came a cropper by riding into the chair of a, the legs of a chair. Now, what interests me is why do I remember this? You know, f uh, 55 years later, why is that still, why can I call that up uh, visually? The other thing that I remember is a very different kind of picture uh, which has a kind of a Seurat pointillist style and was um, probably 1920s uh, uh, very elegant indeed. And I remember that. I remember the curve of a woman's back and behind and knee visually and how the colors were, cl one color was close to the other color. And I also remember in that same book there was a birthday party in which the mother of the birthday child had this wonderful idea of not making a, a cake or a party, but of um, allowing all the little girls to bring their doll clothes and wash them there, a wash day. I mean, what irritates me and interests me about this, why would I remember this? What, what was it? And it seems surely our experiences, whether in books or in life, are partially interesting because we don't know how to connect them with anything that clearly matters. So I want to throw that out. What the heck and why does it, uh, what, what hits us, what stays with us? Because these things are, you know, and I have, they've come across Europe, the Dominican Republic and England, that these, I, these silly, silly notions have stayed with me. Uh, so much for, my, for, for the answer to my own question, but I wanted to throw out another question that, that, that we may want to take up. How did we become readers? We, we, we four sitting up here, and obviously you in the audience, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Uh, I've sometimes found now in, in, in teaching students that there are those who get ideas from the page and can put them back on the page, and there are those who simply don't. There are among us readers, and there are non-readers. Uh, does anybody have any notion why did we, how did we, uh, uh, what, what happened? 
what made us into into this peculiar and and really perhaps rare animal the reader well in my case there was no real choice um, first of all i was expected to read second there was nothing very else that was worthwhile to do and third it so happened that i liked it because uh, i liked not only stories but i genuinely liked words and i think that uh, I remember, as I, I think I tried to say, I, I remember what I read more because of the words than because of plot, for instance. More because of images than because of names. Paul, did the, how, how many people, how did you get into the library in the first place? Why did well, you? let's see. Um, there was the practical aspect of it. There were those long, dark winter evenings in Brooklyn <laughs> when, when there was little or nothing to do aside from homework <clears throat> and, um, and books. Books were entertainment. Books were pleasure. Uh, because I grew up in a household where listening to the radio was restricted to Sunday, to the shadow, to the Long Ranger, <laughs> and what was the other one? To Jack Benny mm. <laughs> and Rochester. <laughs> and then sometimes on a Wednesday night, uh, special dispensation, we were allowed, my sister and myself, to stay up to listen to Amateur Night at the Apollo Theater. But aside from that, we weren't, you know, the radio was off. And so what, where did we kind of find uh, the means to sort of amuse ourselves? And uh, it was in books. It was in books. But I think at another level, perhaps a more important level, reading for me, the impulse to read, came from the need to uh, a search for kind of order and cohesion and for happy endings. It was World War II. That fright, I can, I can still remember the sense of the world coming apart that Sunday, December 7th, when uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor took place. It just seemed to me, then there were the brownouts, and then there were the air raid drills, and so on. My world, the world was coming uh, to pieces. Uh, along with that, at a more personal level, there was the collapse that was sort of taking place within my family. My father, who had become very enamored of, um, of um, a sort of quasi-religious cult called Father Divine, and had become a devotee of this cult, mm. and had gone to live in Father Divine's kingdom in Harlem. So that was another sort of collapse and disarray. Mm. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned before, all of the things that were sort of going on with me as an adolescent. And so reading was kind of my escape hatch. Reading, reading was my safety zone. Uh, reading was uh, logic and order in a world that was overwhelmingly bewildering. Mm -hmm. I just think of all the children in the same situation who did not re read books, who did something else. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, there's something very mysterious <clears throat> about it. I, I was not a reader as a child much. I was. Uh, I was. I love being read to, and I still love it. Anybody who wants to read to me later is welcome. <laughs> <laughs> These books on tape are, you know, a gift from God. But uh, I was a painter, 
I had a lot of facility in drawing and got a lot of attention through drawing. And I was a storyteller <coughs> as opposed to a writer. Uh, I could always uh, exaggerate in exactly the right way to make people laugh and to have a glimmer of recognition. And it constituted a kind of power. My father had no sense of humor. That, you know, and so, of course, I developed an extraordinary one as my only kind of leverage option that I could, I could manage. And then after going to art school for a year, something called the war in Vietnam happened. And uh, I tried to be a conscientious objector uh, without any help from my Republican parents and wound up um, facing a choice between going to federal prison for se seven years or joining some branch of the military in 15 minutes. And so having read Melville and Conrad, you know, it seemed a cleaner death than, you know, being in the trenches in the jungle. So I joined. And it was only on the USS Yorktown, the aircraft carrier, which had, thank God, a wonderful library, that I fell into books out of sheer boredom. You know, there's a point where you get so bored you'll do anything. Anything <laughs> is better than nothing. And as a kid, I was one of those kids... I, I say storyteller as a kid. I, I think liar is probably another way of saying it. I'm part of a great tradition, and I think all of us who write mm -hmm. understand the very thin line between uh, the moral urgency of the stories we want to tell and the moral license it takes to tell them, if you see what I mean. Uh, I remember making up book reports, for example. Uh, it was easier and much, much more fun to make up a book report on the spur of the moment and then write it down. Rex, A Dog of the Pyrenees <laughs> by Rachel Stanton Bigelow. <laughs> this was a very, very good book about a very, very brave dog who saved some very, very silly children. <laughs> and, and on and on and on. It was only when I read, um, and I had the very good, great good fortune, for some weird reason, Henry James was on the USS Yorktown with me, and uh, not in an enlisted capacity, but there in the library, and I read The Portrait of a Lady, practically in one sitting, and I had sort of behind my back as a painter developed uh, this profound interest in presentation of how to take an idea and put it on a canvas on the diagonal or frontally or realistically or distortedly. So that the, I was an esthetician uh, by birth and by preference. And suddenly, having language in a storyteller's capacity, I realized that I was reading the work of a great painter. And James is many things. And a great painter is one of those. And the uh, description of uh, Isabel Archer as someone who had an unquenchable desire to think well of herself, which is satirical and utterly endearing. And for me, as this you know, ambitious, lost 18-year-old kid who had been bartered into this ghastly war by my people, who did nothing to protect me and sent me off to die in this futile enterprise to find this work of enormous beauty and passion 
and shapeliness and wit and, and compassion was a revelation. And it was the beginning. I stole, I'm a liar who steals. All right, now we're going, now we're really getting down to it. Um, a, a ledger from the radio shack where I was assigned, and I still have it. And in it, I, I began writing imitations of, I won't say imitations of Henry James, I'll say imitations of ornate, largely misunderstood 19th century prose. The kind of pattern where one sentence begins with subject verb and the other sentence, the alternate sentence, has to begin with a dependent clause and the subject and the verb has to be hidden at the end of the sentence and then you alternate like a tennis game back and forth. I learned these very basic sort of seasick rudiments and began to apply them and began to do what I had done as a painter, which is learn by imitation. I mean, you go to the museums and you see students in front of a Velasquez paying homage by trying to do it and knowing that they will never be able to do it. And by virtue of reading one book after another, I was led into this uh, extraordinary, um, what, what used to be called belief system, which is literature. And uh, my, I'm from a long line of evangelical preachers, as you can probably hear, I think the occasional upsurge. And it was a kind of uh, atheist you know, compensation uh, for what I had given up out of sheer intellectual rigor but had gotten back in this joy of making shapes and making meaning by making shapes. So it was a very roundabout path. And I think it's one reason why my work is so much about paying homage to speech because speech in the air was what I had before I had speech on the page. And it seems to me that the most eloquent work is the work that works best in the air on the page. And I think all great writing is musical. And I think all great writing reads aloud well from one of Proust's three-page sentences to uh, the most curtailed three-word sentence. Uh, in Wallace Stevens. And I read everything aloud endlessly, which I suppose is a way of roundabout paying homage to invented book reports about the very books that I'm trying to fictionally write myself. I'm torn here between having a wonderful time listening to what everybody's saying and realizing that nobody's talking about children's books. Mm. Would anyone... <laughs> Maybe we just didn't read them. By the way, I have one other memory that just just in order to keep it with children's books, I want to put in here, and that is the first experience of disappointment. Not the first, an experience. A memorable experience of disappointment. There was a book I wanted. I don't know how I got to hear that there was such a book, but I wanted it. I longed for it. I asked for it. I, 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 I sent letters begging for it, and then I got it. And it was a chip. <laughs> it was one of those books about bunny rabbits, about you know the, the, the bunny rabbits that lay Easter eggs and stuff like that. And it was simply a bore. And I remember having yearned. It's like stepping into a, you know, you want a hot bath and it's lukewarm. You know that experience? Uh, it was like that. And here I had, had this serious desire and got this 
young garbage, which so many children's books are. Uh, can, can we just, just because that's what we, we've been brought here to, to talk about, let me bring you down from these heights of Henry James and so on. Uh, do you remember reading what, what? What were the books that you read when you were uh, before you read Henry James? And um, me? Yes. Well, I was born reading Henry James, <laughs> but, uh, but in, in in my spare moments, uh, when, I, when I wasn't reading Henry James, uh, I was in Polish. In Polish, obviously, um, because I read everything in Polish. Then uh, I was reading children's versions of the classics. Hopeless, uh, see? You see <laughs> but, that's, but that was it. Yes. The only, uh, if you want, to, uh, the, as close as I got to children's books that I remember, uh, but they're not really children's books, are Treasure Island. Uh, that's if you want to call it a child's book, but I don't consider it one, and Kidnapped. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, this whole ungodly series of Karl May, uh, Indian, uh, Indian hunting adventure stories, uh, the plots of which I've forgotten, and um, uh, the snatches of them sort of floating in my mind. Then, there were, then you see, the one child's thing that I really do remember very well is, uh, is a series of poems for children by a Polish poet called Tuwim. Uh, T-U-W-I-M and they were onomatopoetic in um, their writing so that you w when you read about a railroad train starting to move you heard the steam and the uh, rolling of the wheels and the clanging of the steel and so on and so forth I suppose had I been able to I would have loved Mother Goose so I really did not come into uh, contact with children's books that I remember until I read children's books to my own children. And Paul? for me, I sort of remember, yes, there were the Bobsy Twins. Here we go. That whole series. And there were the Sue Barton books and the Nancy Drew books. There was the Little House on the Prairie. Those were the kinds of children's books. But I found them... Going. Not to be taken seriously. Um, already, even at that age, I suspect that there was in place the impulse toward writing and that I just needed something of more substance. And so when the word went around, junior high school 35, that there was a book in the adult section of the library that if you just sidled past the librarian at the circulation desk and instead of going to the young people's room you went to the <laughs> adult section you would find it under Z and it was the author's name was Emil Zola <laughs> and the book was entitled Nana <laughs> okay <laughs> And that there were certain explicit passages in Nana, certain steamy scenes in Nana, 
and that you didn't even really have to hunt for them because on the outside, the pages were so nicely soiled <laughs> that you could simply just open to the place <laughs> that you were seeking. I found that far more interesting than the Bossy Twins <laughs> and Nancy Drew. Um, I grew up on Robert Louis Stevenson, A Child's Garden of Verse, which I think is a verses which I think is maybe one of the purest things ever written. I mean, without apologies to anybody. Um, it's also inspired the best illustration, I think. It's one of those books that I've, I've, I've loved. Some, the Walter Crane drawings. You know how it is when you have children's books and you look at them as many times as you do when your mind is that completely open and alert and mnemonically precise. And when you look at the books years later, my parents just sold the house, and I had the good sense to, to get the book house, which was a, a beautiful blue multi-volume set. Um, and I opened the page and had this Proustian rush in which I opened the first volume has like 99 pages in it, and I knew Every, what every layout would be, and they were all ravishingly beautiful. And the poems and the illustrations were so linked in my head that to see even a corner of one of the drawings was to know the poems. The, I will now quote from memory one of those poems. A robin with a yellow bill perched upon my window sill cocked his shiny eye and said, Aren't you shamed, you sleepy head? <laughs> you remember? And this is what my mother used to scold us when we ever slept. And in my um, novel, Oldest Living Confederate Widow, I have always given Robert Louis Stevenson, whom I think is grotesquely underrated as a prose stylist, um, full credit and have mortised into the volume um, maybe 12 poems quoted directly from the book um, that apply in ironic and overloaded ways to the innocence and the lost innocence of my my heroine. Uh, I think there there is a chapter in Kidnapped in which the young man is trapped on an island and is waving to passing fishermen who assume that he's a tourist who's waving for his own amusement and he's hopelessly hungry and lost and miserable that if you put it on a SAT, SAT quiz um, would make a lot of very intelligent graduate students think you were reading um, a, no, a, a chapter from an unfinished novel by Kafka. The, the writing is so pure and fierce and beautiful, and uh, the despair is so palpable. I think Stevenson is great. And also the other great love was um, Lewis Carroll. I, I think that um, if you had to choose one of the... Um, Ten greatest masterpieces uh, in English letters. Um, the collected Alice books are there for me forever. I remember looking at a passage then and now in which um, Alice falls into a, key, a teacup with the, with the mouse and says impolite things to the mouse about, she mentions the word cat and the mouse begins to swim radically away from her. It is the simplest sort of monosyllabic passage, and I dare anybody in the room to read it without laughing. It is hilarious and 
to the idea of mentioning um, a cat to a mouse and having the mouse shriek would seem to be the simplest, crudest kind of narrative device, but it's it's done with such wit and with such um, understanding of children and childhood and that element of ourselves that sort of saves that. Um, that uh, I, I still read it and reread it with relish. Well, I uh, remind our audience to send us up any sent, uh, questions that you want on a, on a piece of paper. I do want to give a little bit of time to the uh, grim fairy tales that you mentioned that are certainly uh, s- central to my childhood reading. And uh, one way to do it is to tell a story in which my, my daughter was involved whom I took on, I think, her eighth birthday. She had hair down to her behind in those days, and I took her to Sassoon to have her hair done as a special treat. And I had my hair done, and she had her hair done. And while she was sitting in great rollers, I was dry very soon, and she was sitting in great rollers underneath one of those magical electric hoods, unable to hear me, I said, Beatrice, I'm going to go downstairs for a cup of coffee. I'll come and get you. And she said, no, 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 no. Don't go. Don't leave me. And I said, don't be silly. You're going to be here another 20 minutes. I'm going to go. I just have a cup of coffee, pick up a couple of things, pick you up. It was many years later that Beatrice told me not only did she think that I was going to leave her there, but that I had brought her there in order to leave her there, replaying the story of Hansel and Gretel. Uh, where you, where did you get, incidentally, uh, fairy tales and, and certain Bible stories are interesting. Uh, when you teach them in, 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 at the universities, people will tell you they have not read the Bible, they don't know the fairy tales, but you start one of them and they know them. It's, it's, they have either heard them and they didn't, weren't listening, but they certainly are, are in, in our, our consciousness. Uh, that, whole, that whole element of fairy tale and, and myth is, has entered, is under our skins. How did you meet those? Uh, you, you're the only one who... who uh... Again, it was in one of those big books that was a feature of the <laughs> nursery. And um, we asked for them over and over again, uh, Billy Goat Gruff and the, those. You know, I was, I was, um, I, I, I like to apply these principles to contemporary reality and see where they hold and where they don't. I was watching the, um, the Thomas nomination hearings on sa- a Saturday morning, and Peter Jennings did something very touching and I thought very enlightened. He tried to. <clears throat> Acknowledge that there were children who would be turning on the television on Saturday morning expecting cartoons and instead getting the hearings. And he tried in a very simple, thumbnail, moral way to explain to the children of America who were looking for uh, Mighty Mouse <clears throat> why this was on instead. And he reduced the whole complication to a simple fable of uh, a man and a woman and the man had said something that upset the woman and the woman had come forward and if the man was the kind of man who had said such a thing even ten years ago, should he be the kind of man who would sit in judgment and was the woman telling the truth and 
it was uh, I can't tell you it was a it was a revelation not only to myself but to the people I was holding hands and watching with uh, to hear all the poisonous moral ambiguity reduced in this attempt to that old moral order in which goodness triumphs and in which uh, a simple plot line is uh, is reckoned with. In the old plot line, the poor provincial girl who comes to the capital to tell the truth about something that happened to her is rewarded for telling a difficult truth. Um, he was not able to make that come out uh, on the show. And it's I think it's fascinating to figure out how these forms, these moral forms, and that's what fairy tales are all about, apply or don't apply, and how morals, the taglines that we're accustomed and uh, expecting to hear uh, are and aren't valid. You don't get a good tagline from the fairy, from the grim fairy tales, or you don't get the the tagline that uh, that is tidy. Right. No, it's more. Uh, I have three questions here. One, Mr. Begley, is for you. Did you ever read Tuvim's poetry? Yes, I have. That's what I mentioned as the um, <coughs> child's poems uh, that I do remember. Uh, and um, I certainly have read his other poems as well. And I, and I love them very, very deeply. I'm glad there is somebody here besides me who has read them. Now, would they uh, do they count in in the general in the general understanding as children's poetry? Well, no, no, not at all. Uh, except Just that he did write he did write one uh, he did write, did write to my knowledge only one book of children's poems, and notably in that uh, in that book there there was a poem about a railroad train uh, which described the. Uh, passengers in each um, compartment, and in in my favorite was the compartment in which there were only fat men, and they were sitting and sweating like thick sausages. That uh, <laughs> uh, caused me intense delight. I might say that I also loved Grimm's fairy tales, but I uh, did not read them as a child. They were read to me, so I consider they're off-bounds so far as I'm concerned for this purpose. No. <laughs> uh, there's a question here. Uh, was there a storyteller in your family, someone who talked to you in a special way, in a special language? Presumably you're the kind of person whom the Grimms were looking for as storyteller. Was there... An well, I know. Well, you, I, I really wanted you to get talk a little bit about the poet in the kitchen that you write yes, about. Yes, yeah, because I was very interested uh, in your speech in the air, mm -hmm. because that was very much my experience um, in my pre-literate days. Um, there's a there's an expression that uh, Ralph Ellison uses when he describes the whole process of becoming the writer, and he says that writers begin their conditioning as manipulators of language long before they are aware of literature. And essentially, that was my experience because I grew up 
among a group of women, which included my mother and about three or four of her closest friends, um, who had a practice of sort of getting together <clears throat> maybe twice a week in the kitchen, in the large kitchen, the brownstone house on Hancock Street in Brooklyn, where we lived. And they would sit, I remember, around this large oilcloth-covered table in the middle of the kitchen, and they would talk. And they didn't just gossip. They talked about everything under the sun, and they had an opinion about everything. That was that whole thing of speech in the air. The other thing about these women was that they were masterful storytellers, so that from a very early age, I developed the impulse for storytelling, so that I think that's one of the reasons I was impatient with the standard children's literature because I was being treated to this very substantive and rich mm -hmm. storytelling that was going on in the kitchen. And in a sense, I mean, they were really kind of poets. They had taken the most available art form because they couldn't become dancers and they couldn't sort of paint pictures and have them hung in the museum and so on. Uh, they were, you know, fairly um, uneducated women with few skills, but they had language. And they were women who had a great need to express themselves creatively. And so they took this one available art form and, um, and perfected it. And so I would sit there because that was a time when children were to be seen but not heard. So I couldn't say anything. I just had to sit and listen to them. And of course, I didn't want to be there. But that was the best thing that ever happened to me because my apprenticeship as a writer began in that kitchen. They first of all taught me um, the means, the ways to make characters come alive on the page because they worked as domestics in the white areas of Brooklyn and they would come back and talk about their jobs and their madams as they called them. And even though I'd never met any of those women that they had worked for, by the time they got through describing them, I could see them clearly in my mind's eye. Uh, they didn't just tell a story in any old kind of way. A story always had structure and form. And so I learned the basics of constructing stories. But above all, but above all, they trained my ear to appreciate and understand the beauty, complexity, and power of ordinary, everyday speech. Paul, have I, got, have I got this wrong? I remember the words raw mouth coming. Did that's, I, did I get that right? That's one of the expressions. One of their expressions. Which I think just, yes, I don't, I don't you from? don't know exactly they what just, it means, but you no, know exactly what it means. Absolutely. They would come home from these little jobs they had and complain about the low wages they made, and they said, oh, the few raw mouth pennies she paid me. They just invented it. That's why you ended up in the library. <laughs> That's, right. That's You know, and uh, or they would say about someone who wasn't particularly good looking, oh, poor soul, she's got a face like an accident before it happened. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything they described as beautiful, ugly. They would go downtown Brooklyn and buy a pair of shoes or a coat, lovely coat, lovely pair of shoes, bring it home, and would say, well, I just bought this beautiful, ugly pair of shoes or this beautiful, ugly coat. And I would wonder to myself, why the ugly? They know and I know that the thing is beautiful. But it was their way of kind of reflecting on, on their perception of reality, that everything for them contained its opposite.
And so they always had to include that other component, that the opposite. And so there was always this kind of magical thing that they were doing with language. So that when I finally graduated from the kitchen <clears throat> to the Macon Street branch of the public library, it was simply confirmation for me of what I had heard, the speech in the air, which I think is a marvelous phrase. <laughs> I think this is also an answer to one. Of, we, we're just going to have three questions, and we will deal with those and, and wind up. But I think you've also answered one of the questions that's here. Does your, did your childhood reading, or in this case childhood hearing, have anything to do with your writing afterwards? Yes, yes just in this, in this particular way. Uh, uh, one, of my, one of my little pieces of paper says uh, that I've talked about children's books being garbage. Uh, I, I, th I threw that word away. I think that was an, an unkind word. What I meant was that how odd it is that the things that made a deep impression were not necessarily good books. I understand, looking back now, for instance, I can see that certain of the illustrations that have stayed in my mind were not what I would now call good illustrations. And it puzzles me and interests me. And I have no answer whatsoever that what stays with you, what makes an impact, is not necessarily high culture or good art. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a curiosity. Uh, there is a question here, what do, oh, this is a big one. We could start a whole new hour and a half or year and a half. Uh, what do we know about, what do we say about the difference, the different cultures producing such different stories? Uh, let me say, do you think the existence of varied cultural fairy tales and fables to children, uh, in children's books, and children's books creates different adults? Anybody want to take that one up? In other words, uh, could we make better adults via providing finer world literature? Or the other way around, I assume. Why don't American children read Baron Munchausen? Why are Icelandic tales unknown to Polynesian children? It's not that are they unknown, but, uh, but the, presumably the question, why, why do we produce the kind of stories that uh, uh, different kinds of stories c come out of different uh, cultural... No, I don't know how to finish that sentence. <laughs> I think the answer is yes. <laughs> or the, uh, alternately, no. <laughs> but it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have Baron Munchausen remembered. Yes, yes. I wish is. somebody had also, also mentioned Struvelpeter. Mm. Uh, without whom my fingers would not be as neat as they are. <laughs> Does everybody you know, here know about the, who, who knows about Struble Peter? Oh, mm. uh, <laughs> well, maybe maybe it means you're culturally sounder than if you did. <laughs> Finally, the last question I think is very suitable. How come there are so many rabbits in children's books? <laughs> uh, Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail, Br'er Rabbit, Peter Rabbit. Flopsy, Mopsy, they're brothers. I mean, Peter Rabbit, I think, belongs with Flopsy. Why do, why do we... Oh, and, and, the, and the writer suggests that uh, do they represent a special symbol in our culture? Uh, could this be related to breeding and overpopulating the earth? <laughs> the raging hormones. <laughs> I've heard a, a quip about uh, children's book writers and writing and how 
seemingly innocent the books are and how difficult they are to get published, and it's a quip that you all probably know. A friend was trying to get one published, and somebody said, you've got to be careful. It's bunny eat bunny. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. you I don't know that you talked about children's books, but we had a good time. (laughs) I know. I I wish I'd remembered Baron Winchell. Well...